God in heaven, we pray that you would speak to us this morning by the power of your word and that you would subdue every fleshly tendency in us to be distracted, to be defiant, that you would humble ourselves so that we would say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Please be seated. There are certain dates in history, which every time they come around on the calendar, you can remember exactly where you were on that date. And so many of you can remember where you were November 22nd, 1963, can't you, when John Fitzgerald Kennedy was assassinated. Or some of you remember that date as the date of C.S. Lewis' death. Maybe you remember where you were July 20th, 1969, as man set foot for the first time on the moon. More of us remember where we were on September 11th, 2001, when the first and second airplanes struck the World Trade Center and the third struck the Pentagon, the fourth went down in a field in Pennsylvania. Where were you on December 3rd, 2017? For most of us, or for many in this room, that date is irrelevant. But for others, it's maybe a date that'll live in infamy because you and I were sitting in those hard burgundy chairs at 302 Burroughs Avenue where this church met for seven years before we had this building. And for the very first time on that date, I said to you, please take out your copy of God's Word and turn to the Gospel according to Luke. Now, four and a half years later, I'm going to say to you the same thing once again for the last time in this study. Would you please take out your copy of God's Word and turn to the Gospel according to Luke? Just a reminder of context, 40 days have elapsed since the Lord Jesus' resurrection Luke chose not to share with us much that happened during those 40 days. We saw just a couple of interactions with the disciples. We saw the Great Commission last week. We know from the other Gospels that Christ has eaten with his disciples, proving to them that he wasn't an apparition. He has taught them. He has restored some of them from their failures. And now, Our Lord is about to depart from them. He's about to make the end of his earthly ministry by the ascension. And as we're going to see today, the ascension is more of a beginning than it is an ending. So listen now to the reading of God's word. If you're using the Bible in your row, this is on page 885. Luke 24, starting at verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. Thus ends Luke's gospel. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God will stand forever. This morning I get the privilege of preaching about the ascension of Jesus Christ as Jesus departed from earth and was raised into the heavens. And I'm going to assume that everybody in this room is probably going to fall into one of two categories. For some of you, you've actually never heard a sermon on the ascension. 
For others, you've heard a sermon on the ascension, and it probably started off like this. The pastor saying, this is the most underpreached and underappreciated doctrine in all of Christianity. Is that true? You know, you've probably heard hundreds of sermons on the birth of Christ. You've heard many sermons on the death of Christ. At least once a year, I assume, you hear a sermon on the resurrection of Christ. How many of you can remember the last time you heard a sermon on the ascension of Christ? I think there's reasons for that. One of them is that Luke and Acts are the only two Gospels that tell us about it. Another reason is that we view it just sort of as a logistical necessity. It was the end of Jesus' trip to, the earth, to earth. And so just like when you go out of town, this is, you have a trip home, and we kind of think of Jesus that way. He's been out of town, now he's returning home. But the ascension is much more than a logistical necessity. It is an essential heavenly reality. In other words, the ascension of Christ is one of the most important doctrines in heaven and earth that Jesus Christ has ascended into the heavens. I think the reason we don't give it adequate attention is because it's a heavenly event and we tend to be so earthly-minded. The birth of Christ makes sense to us. The resurrection of Christ, even though it's, it's miraculous, it makes sense to us because at least he walked on the earth. But the ascension of Christ doesn't really make sense to us because we can't imagine what it was like for Jesus to depart from this world, from this realm, into the heavenly realm. And so this morning, as we think about the ascension, we are going to have to intentionally become heavenly-minded people. We're going to have to lift our minds off of earth and onto heaven. As we examine this text, I want you to see two things about the ascension. First is, the ascension raises Christ up to the position of highest possible glory. And then second, the ascension raises us up to the position of highest possible blessing. Those are the two things I want us to see today. So first, the ascension raises Christ up to this position of highest possible glory. Now, who is Christ? Who are we talking about? We're talking about the second person of the Trinity, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the only begotten of the Father, who, according to John, existed before all worlds. And so we might want to ask, how could he be any more glorious than he already was? But we need to understand this in terms of redemption, of the history of redemption. There's two major divisions in the ministry of Jesus Christ, and the first was, is what theologians call his humiliation, that he was brought low. That, that word humiliation actually comes from a word that means dust, so his being brought to the dust. Jesus was born a real person, a real human family. You know, sometimes we make a big deal out of it at Christmas time that that Joseph and Mary were poor because they offered doves. And so it's even more astounding that Jesus was born into a poor family. But in all reality, even if he had come to the wealthiest family on the face of the earth and had lived in their mansion, it still would have been dust compared to, to the glory that he departed in heaven. 
For 33 years on earth, he lived a perfect life. He lived under the law voluntarily. He submitted himself to to the law. He served others. He healed others. He blessed others. And in exchange, he was reviled, cursed, beaten, arrested, condemned, and crucified. The Apostle Paul captured this well in Philippians 2. Will you look there with me? And I, I am going to encourage you today to keep your Bibles open and, and to be looking around. And you'll want to keep Philippians 2 open because I'm going to revisit it in just a few minutes. But I want you to see these things for yourself. The Apostle Paul understood the humiliation of Christ, that he was brought low. Look at Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He became, uh, was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Paul there, and you can really, you need to hear the awe in his voice. This Jesus, glorious beyond all measure, He departed. He left all of it behind. He took on human flesh and he humbled himself to the point of death, even a disgraceful death, death on a cross. The humiliation of Christ is the reason that Isaiah, 700 years before in Isaiah 53, would tell us that there was nothing in him that should attract us to him. There was no visible outward glory. But the position of humiliation would not be the final position of our Lord Jesus. He who stooped to become the dust of the earth would soon be raised up to the place of highest glory. Do you remember in the upper room, the night of Jesus' betrayal? Um, No, excuse me, in the high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 5, Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Christ is praying this prayer. He's saying, my work that you have sent me here to do is about to be finished. And I long to be exalted back to your right hand. And the Father was so pleased with the work that Christ did that he rejoiced to answer that prayer by exalting Jesus to the highest place in the ascension. So to return back to Philippians 2, look at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul's saying there, Jesus Christ in his ascension is the most glorious being in all existence. There is none, there is no one, nothing more glorious than him. Let's think about what that means, that Christ is is the most glorious being in existence. First, it means that he is exalted above all earthly powers and even the powers of heaven and the powers of hell. He is exalted above all of them. Look at Ephesians 1 for a moment. Paul's speaking here of the power of God 
towards us who believe. And in verse 20, Ephesians 1 verse 20, he says it's the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Paul's telling us here that in the ascension, Jesus Christ was exalted to be the most glorious being above all powers, all principalities in this world. Uh, Now that image can be hard for us to understand because you and I live in a world in which darkness seems to be winning. Daily, we see churches compromising and pandering to win the affections of the world. We see biblical morality crumbling brick by brick. We see Christ's followers increasingly being marginalized by this world. We hear non-Christians profaning the name of Jesus. And God, you're telling us that Jesus is the most exalted being above all powers and principalities. But we've got to remember, that's just earth's perspective. If you and I were to pull back the curtain of heaven, like John did in Revelation 4 and 5, and were able to see the throne room of God, we would see angels there in their great power. We would see the archangels, the greatest of the angels, all of them with all their beauty, lying on their faces, worshiping Jesus Christ. They're not worried about the decline of morality in America They're falling on their faces to worship the one who is infinitely more glorious than anything else in heaven and on earth. When Jesus ascended, what he was doing was he was receiving the throne. That's why we read Psalm 24. Psalm 24 was a a psalm read on the coronation day of the Davidic king. But none of the Davidic kings really matched what Psalm 24 talked about, the one who had clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 24 pointed to the coronation of the Lord Jesus where he ascended the throne and rules over all his and our enemies. As he ascended, you can imagine the voice of the Father speaking those great words from Psalm 110. I will make your enemies your footstool. Beloved, the enemies of Christ may prosper in this world and the wrong seems oft so strong. But if we lift our gaze into heaven, we can see that Jesus Christ is seated above all earthly powers and principalities. Now, not only is he exalted above all powers and principalities, but second, he's exalted as head of the church. Colossians 1.18, Paul says that Christ is the head of the body, the church. What does that mean? It means that what Christ is doing with his power is building his church. That's what he's doing this very moment. If we were to read the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew doesn't include the ascension. He closes with the Great Commission. And you remember how the Great Commission begins? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Jesus is saying the work that I am committed to doing is to build the church. So you come with me and let's go out and make disciples. Towards what end does Christ wield his unimaginable authority over the powers and principalities of this world. 
to build his church. And I know it, you look around at the world and you look at the news and you think he's building his church. It's, the church seems to be crumbling around the face of the earth today. Or at least in the world as we know it in America, it seems to be declining. But we need to understand that Christ in his place of exaltation, what he is doing this very moment is building his church. His purposes will not fail. In fact, I don't know if you realize this. By the year 2050, the areas with the largest Christian population on the face of the earth will likely be sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, and Asia. So even though we are not seeing it in our arrogant world today that in so many ways has turned from Christ, rejected him, what he's doing is he is raising up gospel witnesses all over the face of the earth. He will build his church. And that shouldn't be any surprise to us. Psalm 2, which many of us studied this week in, in our devotionals. Psalm 2, we see this line, Ask of me and I will give the nations to you as your heritage the ends of the earth, your possession. I have little doubt that when Christ ascended to the Father, he said to his Father, Father, you promised the nations as an inheritance. The ends of the earth as my possession and the Father says to the Son, Son, there is nothing that would bring me more joy. And so the Father and the Son have sent the Spirit to build the church around the face of the earth. That's what Christ is doing as the head of the church. And then third thing about the exaltation of Christ to the place of highest possible glory is that he is seated at the right hand of his Father. Jesus ascended through the clouds into the heavenly realm and the Father spoke to him those words again from Psalm 110, sit at my right hand. The language of being seated is incredibly important when we think about the Old Testament priests. The Old Testament priests never got to sit down. Do you know why? For the same reason that mothers of young children never get to sit down, because the work isn't done. So for Old Testament priests, there were always more sacrifices to be made. There was always more work to do. But when Jesus Christ ascended, those words, it is finished, were echoing through heaven. And Jesus Christ is seated because the cost of the redemption of his people had been paid. The church had been purchased by his blood. And so Christ is seated there. The redemption of his people is secure. I just want to bring to light a very obvious application. If Jesus Christ is the most exalted being in all of existence, then you and I should speak of him and think of him with utmost reverence. The name of Jesus Christ is not a curse word, as many would treat it today. It is not a name to be profaned. It is a name to be spoken with awe that this Jesus who is my friend, who has redeemed me, is the one who is seated in the highest possible heavens. 
He is glorious, and we as believers ought never to speak lightly of him. We got to realize that to behold the glory of God by knowing the name of Christ is our first taste of heavenly glory. It is the greatest privilege of the Christian in this world to know the name of Jesus. And we ought to speak it with great reverence. Now let's shift our attention from what the ascension meant for Jesus to now what it means for us. That the ascension raises us to the place of highest possible blessing. Look back at Luke 24. As Jesus prepares to ascend, he lifts up his hands and blesses them. And it says, while he blessed them, he departed from them and was carried up. The language indicates that it was ongoing. As they saw Jesus go out of their sight, his hands were lifted up. Now they knew exactly what that meant. To see Jesus with his hands lifted, it took them back to Leviticus chapter 9, to the Old Testament priest who would make a sacrifice for the people, and then he would come out of the Holy of Holies, he would lift his hands, and he would pronounce peace to the people. He would give a benediction to the people. And that's exactly what they see Jesus doing here, indicating that God had accepted the sacrifice. That Old Testament priest was just a foreshadowing, a type of what Christ would do as he came to be both the high priest and the sacrifice. On the cross, the curse for our sins was laid upon Jesus. The resurrection proved that the curse of sin and the curse of death had been broken. And Christ burst through the chains of death. And now as he lifts his hands in the sight of the disciples, he is telling them, you who belong to me, you live the fullness of your life under my blessing, under my highest blessing. We need to be clear on that. You and I don't have team uniforms, do we? So we can't look at some and say he belongs to Christ and others and say he doesn't. But everyone in this room is in one of two positions. You are under either the weight of the heaviest possible curse because of your sins or you are under the highest possible blessing because you are trusting in Christ. You're under either the weight of the heaviest possible curse or the highest possible blessing. And for those here who do not trust in Christ, I want to plead with you to turn to him. Look to him all the ends of the earth and be saved, the scriptures say. Turn to Jesus, confess your sins and trust in him because you cannot bear the weight of your sins. But for all who trust in him, The fullness of the blessing of God rests upon you. You know, a lot of us have loved ones who have since passed. And you probably have one enduring vision of them in your mind. It may be a happy vision. It may be a sad vision. It may be them just before they died. But it's an enduring vision. Isn't it wonderful that the last vision the disciples had of Christ was his hands up blessing them. 
It was Christ's way of saying, when you think of me, I want you to think of me in this posture, that you are always under my blessing. It's a visible picture that the disciples in that day and the disciples today live every moment of our lives under God's richest blessing. There's folks in this room that'll say, I don't feel that way. My life's been a series of difficulties. You feel like if there's any Bible character you can relate to, it's Job. One trouble after another. But if we want to see this blessing that God has promised, we cannot look inward, we cannot look downward, we must look upward and Christward and see him there with his hands raised, giving us his benediction. This week in my own study of the word, I, was, I started making lists of all the different blessings that are ours through the ascension of Christ. And I can't go through all of them because we'd run out of time. But I want to highlight a few of them. First, the ascension gives us eternal security. Can you know that when you die, you will go to be with Christ? I talk to so many people who say, I sure hope so. That is absolutely foolish to say, I hope, I'm optimistic that when I die, I will spend eternity with Jesus. No, no, no. You can know for certain. How do we know for certain? In Ephesians 2.6, look, look at Ephesians 2 with me for a moment. Ephesians 2 is a beautiful presentation of the gospel, and it starts off with the bad news. You, you don't care about the good news till you hear the bad news. So Ephesians 2, starting at verse 1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at, now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is the unbeliever's autopsy report right there. But look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, you are seated next to Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. That's an astounding thought. It's one that's really hard for our minds to comprehend, and yet it's worth trying. It's worth studying. In a sense, it's like when you go to a concert and you reserve a seat for somebody who's coming later. That seat has your name on it. And in a very real way, that's what Christ has done. He has reserved a seat for us. But it's even more than that. We are in him. We're one with him. Um, I don't understand, and you don't either, and nobody else does, the physics of the ascension. How did it happen? I have no idea. Did Jesus have jet boosters? No, I don't think so. But there was some power at work within him that he ascended through the clouds, through heaven, to the highest place. Do you wonder if Jesus laid aside his humanity on the way to heaven 
Did his flesh melt away as he soared through the clouds and then he just became at the right hand some, hand, some divine being? Um, a couple months back, I was downtown at the waterfront park. It was about an hour before sunrise, and so you could see uh, the stars really well in the sky. And we saw a rocket coming across the sky. It was absolutely beautiful with this contrail behind it that lit up the sky. We didn't know what it was at the time. It was SpaceX, which we found out later, Elon Musk's rocket. But uh, everything belongs to Elon Musk at this point. But as we watched it, this piece came off of it. And our first thought was that it was some sort of disaster, you know, that something had gone wrong. But this piece came off and it was lit up and it, it descended to the earth. It ended up being the, the, the booster that the rocket was designed to shed. Did Jesus in his ascension shed his flesh so he's just a divine being at the right hand of the Father? Not at all. His flesh was not a costume that he put on for a little while and then took off when he had finished his earthly work. Jesus took our flesh onto himself permanently. That's him being united with us. If Christ had shed his human flesh before he entered the presence of God, that would have been good and well for him, but it would have kept the doors of heaven closed to us because a righteous man had to go to heaven. A righteous high priest had to go to heaven to make the way for us to be able to go in. Christ never shed his humanity. As one theologian said, the dust of the earth now sits on the throne of the universe. And as he entered that heavenly holy of holies into the glorious presence of God, he brought us with him. He brought resurrected humanity into God's presence. And as he entered, you and I were there too. That's union with Christ. We are one with him. Um, we sing this. We sang it just a few minutes ago. My name is written on his hands. My name is graven on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. After the sermon, we're going to sing it this way. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Where does this idea come from that our names are written in the hands of Christ? Look with me at Isaiah 49 for a moment. And if you're thinking today, he's making us flip all over the place. Why is he doing this? I want you to see it for yourselves. It's such good news. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see God's word for it. Isaiah 49, we read a portion of this passage last week, and we stopped before this section. I want to return to it. Look at verse 15. Actually, 14. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Have you ever felt that way, that God has forgotten you? God responds, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. If you belong to Christ, then there are two hands in heaven, nail-pierced hands, and your name is written there. That is the highest possible eternal security you and I could ever wish for. So that's the first blessing of the ascension. Second blessing of the ascension is that it gives meaning and context to our worship. 
what happens when we worship? Is it just 150 people coming in a room and singing and listening to a man speak so that we can then go home and eat our lunches? If that's all that happens in worship, you really shouldn't get up early for that. And you really should only come if it really makes you happy, if that's all that happens in worship. But there is so much more going on when we worship. Think of that scene in Psalm 24 as Christ ascended and the angels have lined the way and they're saying, Who is this King of glory? The Lord, mighty in battle. They're praising Him. It's, you've been in a, have you ever been in a victory parade? A, a small town high school wins the state championship. They come back to town at one or two in the morning. The roads are lined with cars. They have a police escort coming in and the people are celebrating. The angels in heaven, thousands of thousands of them, worship the resurrected, ascended Jesus Christ. When you and I gather in worship, we are gathering with that church. It's not just us in this room. It is the church throughout all the ages lifting our voices up in worship to Christ. Many of us heard 60 or so college students sing in this room on Wednesday, and the, the room echoed with their voices. Can you imagine thousands of thousands of angels? And what we do when we worship is we are joining in that chorus of the angels and the saints who have gone before us. We're lifting our voices up as well. Doesn't it transform how we worship? That worship is not a performance that we attend if it meets all of our standards, if we like the style. That worship is us being transported into heaven to lift our voices with the saints and angels who've gone before us. So the ascension gives context and meaning to our worship. Third, the ascension gives us courage for the Christian life. Because Christ has ascended, the Christian life is not a life of discouragement. It's not a life of defeat. The scriptures tell us we are more than conquerors in him who loved us. That means there is no enemy that you can face, no sin you can fight that is not subject to Christ's power. That he is victorious over all his and our enemies. As we struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, we do not fight alone because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, and we know that the reigning Christ lives in that world of powers and principalities, and he rules and overrules over all. And so we should live the Christian life with great confidence. Fourth, the ascension gives gifts for the building of the church. Last week, we looked at the Great Commission, and I suspect, and I charged you hard, that you and I need to be busy about the work of making disciples all over the face of the earth. And I imagine that some of you walked away and said, you know, that might be good for some people, but I don't have those gifts. Yes, you do. Look at Ephesians 4 for a moment.
Ephesians 4, starting at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That image there is a king who has gone to battle, he's been victorious, and then he gives the spoils of war, he gives the armor, he gives the weaponry to his people to use. What Ephesians is telling us is that when Christ ascended, he gave his people, every person, man, woman, and child who belonged to him, he gave gifts for the building up of the church. Fifth, the ascension is the guarantee of Christ's return. Acts is the other book that gives the account of the ascension. And there, it's really a funny scene. The disciples are staring. Jesus has ascended. Two angels appear and they say, Men of Galilee, why are you staring into heaven? <laughs> We're staring into heaven because Jesus just ascended. They say, the angels say, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus Christ will one day return. He'll return on the clouds. He'll return to this world one day, just as surely as he departed, he will one day return. What does that mean for us? It means that our job is not to stare at the skies and try to discern something about the moon and when Jesus will return. Our job is to be faithful until Jesus returns. It means that we're to fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus and to live our lives with the same words of the Apostle Paul, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Christ will return. We will one day give account. This is so astounding. If you're a believer, hear me on this, every second of your life is lived under the richest blessing of Christ. You cannot escape it. That's like the psalmist in Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. We have a dog that follows my wife every step of the way around the house. She cannot escape him. You cannot, if you belong to Christ, escape the blessing of God. That wasn't lost on the disciples. Look back at how they responded. Verse 52. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, they could have been distraught that they were losing Jesus once again. They'd already lost him once to death. Now, he's departing from them. They could have been distraught, but it tells us there they were filled with joy. What about us? If they had reason for joy, don't you and I have more reason for joy? We have the fullness of the Scriptures. All the things that I just told you about the blessing of Christ's ascension— they didn't know those. You do. There is so much they didn't know that you, First Scots Church, in 2022, do know. Here's a question. Why do we not have the same kind of joy that the disciples had? I know a lot of Christians. You know a lot of Christians. I don't know a lot of Christians who have this kind of joy. And we should. We should be overjoyed that our Jesus is exalted to the highest place in heaven. And we should be overjoyed that his benediction, his blessing 
rests upon us. It is ours. He has, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, lavished it upon us. Shouldn't we be the most joyful people on the face of the earth? There's no reason not to be, but the problem is we're so earthly-minded, aren't we? We spend our days thinking about food and drink and work and things like that, and we spend so little time thinking about the ascended Jesus. That was the problem in Hebrews. We're going to study Hebrews next. And part of the reason is we need to understand what to do with the ascended Jesus. And and Hebrews tells us, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus, with joy, endured the cross. You and I, when our eyes are upon Jesus, we can have great joy no matter what circumstances we're facing in this life. So if you're taking notes, here's our application. And it's only one application because it's one that the Christian will have to spend the rest of our lives doing, the rest of our lives working on. And it's this. You and I must lift our eyes and hearts up off of this world and firmly fix them on the Lord Jesus that we may enjoy the joy that is ours in him. Look with me at Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, Paul says this so wonderfully. Hear this as an exhortation to you, beloved. If then you have been raised with Christ, if you're with him, if you're in him, seek the things that are above where Christ is, is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That's our, our marching orders, our job description from this text. What do we do with the ascension? We fix our minds, we fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ. How foolish is it? Hear me, beloved. How foolish is it that so many of us are so consumed with things like wealth and leisure and reputation, all of which will one day pass away when the joy of the ascended Savior is ours. Close with this. C.S. Lewis tells the story of a boy playing in a mud puddle in a city somewhere, and his mom comes and says, I want to take you to the beach. Let's, Let's go on a vacation to the beach. The boy had no idea what the beach was, and so stubbornly he refused to go because he wanted to keep playing in the mud. He could not imagine there was anything better. Beloved, when you and I fix our eyes and our minds on this world, we are forsaking the greatest of blessings. Let's not settle for the fleeting pleasures of this world when the lasting joy of knowing Christ is ours when we seek him. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we praise you for this word, and I pray that every man, woman, and and child in this room would be fixed upon Jesus Christ, that our hearts and our minds would be fixed upon him, and that it would lead to great joy. God, give us real joy, lasting joy, joy that can only be found in Christ. God, we confess that many of us, we, we find ourselves bogged down with anxieties and a critical spirit and disappointment. And all of those are symptoms that our eyes are not upon the ascended Jesus. So God, fix our eyes like a flint upon Jesus. 
let us know that those solid